Blog Talk Radio. Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Thursday or Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. I'm sorry, it's Friday. It's always Friday. Um, uh, June 24th, uh, 2016. And uh, today's episode uh, will be uh, an interview that I did a while back with John Perkins, who is well known as the author of uh, The Confessions of an Economic Hitman and his new book, The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. So um, without further fanfare and discussion, I'll just check right into the interview and let you enjoy it. It'll probably be a relatively short show tonight. Uh, the interview runs about 35 minutes long. So I hope you enjoy it. So our, our guest tonight on Liberal Fix Radio is uh, John Perkins, who is the author of uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman and also the author of uh, 12 Years Later, his new book, which is New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Um, how are you doing today, John? I'm doing great, Keith. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good and happy to have you on the show. Really excited about it. I, I think a lot of our listeners will enjoy it. Um, your uh, um, writing has, has made, a, I think, a pretty substantial splash on the, I guess, the progressive scene for people who read and pay attention to what's going on in the world. So uh, my first question might be, um, what prompted you to write a book called New Confessions of an Economic Hitman? What's happened in the last um, decade or so that has uh, necessitated maybe a, a follow-up uh, story? Well, yeah, uh, I'll answer that, Keith. But I also just want to point out that you mentioned progressive leaders. But I have to say, I've been speaking at quite a few conservative organizations, too, and, and CEO organizations and MBA programs. The book also seems to strike a chord with a lot of uh, fairly conservative uh, business-oriented people, and we can talk about that. Sure, and yeah, yeah, so I don't want to sort of uh, marginalize it as only something to progressives because obviously it's something that's important to Americans of all sort of political leanings or ideologies. Um, so, yeah, I, I certainly an overlap with um like you said, paleo conservatives and, and other people who are concerned about the same thing. So that's a good uh, correction to make there on your part. Yeah, thanks. And and why I wrote the uh, you know the the new confessions twelve years after the original. And incidentally, uh, I would mention to people I sometimes get the question, do I need to read the original before the second? And no. Uh, the second one covers, uh, you know, explains most, you know, sort of summarizes what was in the original, but there's a lot of very, very new material in the new one, too, which is more up to date. In the last 12 years uh, since the original came out, things have really gotten a lot worse. Uh, the whole economic hitman system that I describe as, as being part of and was mainly in the developing countries, and in the last 12 years, it spread uh, from the developing world to the United States, Europe, and the rest of the world, and so has, has sort of the jackal operations. You know, the the the, the people who go in and and uh, commit acts of violence and and terror, if you want to call it that, uh, when economic hitmen fail. It spread to the United States, Europe, and the rest of the world, and at the same time, people around the planet are waking up. 
to the fact that it's happening and it's a failed system. It's not, it's not really working for anyone except the very rich, and ultimately um, it will probably fail them too. So these two things that are happening, that the, that the system has gotten worse, the status quo has, has, has really uh, tried to strengthen its position out of probably desperation, among other things, and people are waking up. There's a consciousness revolution. And so I think the, when you get these two elements coming together, it deserves a new book <laughs> exposing how things have gotten worse. And then a lot of the book is, is strategizing about what we can each do, every one of your listeners, uh, to make things better. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, um, and I want to get into what we can each do, but uh, maybe first, before I do that, um, can you maybe lay out some examples of, of how it's sort of expanded into, like you said, into the United States or Western Europe, huh? Um, some of the specific sort of incidents that would be that you would look to 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 note how that's been changing. You know, it's it's it, yes, I'm happy to do that. Uh, I, I've just been working this morning on a on a blog that I'll be posting soon. Incidentally, people can get my blogs and newsletters at johnperkins.org. And this blog goes into the fact that so many news outlets, fairly conservative ones like uh, the Washington Post and in NPR, some people don't think of them conservative, but I think they're relatively conservative. Fox News, that's pretty conservative, as well as the more liberal ones like PR Watch uh, and, and so forth have, have recently been reporting on how on this video, a so-called closed-door webinar conducted by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and a number of the state chambers uh, has been instructing its lobbyists, chamber lobbyists, on how to oppose minimum wage changes, uh, increasing the minimum wage, and in, in uh, increasing maternity leave for, and, and paternity leave, and many other what you might call liberal or progressive movements in the labor market, despite the fact that their major polling firm, Global Luntz, which is a GOP polling firm, has found that more than, about 80% of CEOs favor most of these policies. Um, so this is a, a clear indication of one of the modern forms of economic hitmen that go out and represent a few of the very, very wealthy and powerful, uh, despite the fact that many of their own members of the Chamber of Commerce disagree. But the rich and some of the, the, the Koch brothers are mentioned specifically and, and some of the others who, who you, in fact, instruct a public relations firm that's found something very different, but instruct them to, to to lobby in favor of policies that are extremely retroactive, extremely harmful to what the U.S. economy needs right now, and certainly the average American needs. Um, these are a modern form of economic hitmen. We also see this amongst many of our elected officials, senators and members of the House of Representatives who who today work for big corporations. We may elect them, but they don't listen to us once they're elected. They listen to the people who finance their campaigns and who offer them extremely lucrative consulting and lobbyist jobs if they don't get reelected or decide not to run the next time around. Uh, we've got economic hitmen working in this area of incredible amounts of student debt and credit card debt. Wall Street, the big bankers, uh, you know, on and on. I can just go on and on. There's a lot of detail in the new Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I just sort of uh, hit the tip of the iceberg here. 
yeah, and something and and like you said too, I think something that people are are waking up to at least to some extent and, and in terms of people waking up, what are things we can do to counteract that? I mean, I know in the political realm there's you know there's some momentum behind the Bernie Sanders campaign and and that I think can be part of things, but obviously there's things that need to be done outside the electoral realm too, and it can't be about just one person. it has to be about a bigger movement so what are what are your thoughts on on what can be done by individual people, both in the United States and maybe in other places as well? Well, yeah, and and a lot of the new confessions of an economic hitman is devoted to that, including long lists at the end of the book about what students can do, another list about what retired people can do, another one about what people in between those two can do, and what entrepreneurs can do, and executives and investors. I think the main thing is for us to realize that this system is is driven by big corporations. And those big corporations are just groups of people. Uh, there's, there's nothing evil about them. They're, they're whatever we kind of make them be. Uh, and they only have their power and exist because we buy their goods and services, invest in them, work for them, and support them with our tax dollars. But they are driven by one policy, which, which is a policy that only came into effect in 1976 when uh, Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in economics and stated that the only responsibility of business is to maximize profits, regardless of the social and environmental cost. That was not what I was taught in business school in the late 60s. That's a relatively new, radical policy. And when Friedman introduced it, we were at a time when it was believed that capital was limited and nature was abundant. We believed that you know, we could throw all the trash we wanted to into the atmosphere and the water and on and the landfills and the earth would just keep absorbing it. Nobody was talking about peak oil. Nobody was talking about climate change in 1976. That's all changed. And we have to recognize that this edict of Friedman's, which is all the corporations that follow this, the goal of a corporation is to maximize profit, is no longer working. We need to change that to one where the corporations are serving a public interest, pay a decent rate of return to investors, but serve a public interest. And you know, all of us need to understand that we play a role in that. And I go into detail, as I said in the book, about what people can do. But but one of the things, obviously, is to use social media to convince corporations that they have to change their ways. Like you brought up pretty well, that corporations aren't inherently moral or immoral. They're kind of amoral. But when they when the bottom line becomes only about maximizing profit, the sort of Friedman model there, and there's no sort of consideration of other things like the, you know, <laughs> the environmental impact, the future costs of what they're doing that, you know, the, I mean, like you said, even for the rich people, ultimately this the system could become unsustainable because in order for a corporation to survive, they have to have a base of consumers that aren't, you know, destitute. I mean, they have to have people that will buy their products or services and they can't have a situation where 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 everything collapses. I mean, I think the 2008 economic crisis is an example of that. I mean, some of the big banks and some of the big corporations fell on the undertow maybe partially because they were so driven by maximizing short-term profits that they weren't even aware that their own practices were contributing to their own demise because it was so narrowly focused on the bottom line that, you know, ultimately even their bottom line suffered in the end because there was no recognition of human behavior, which I think is 
one of my biggest complaints about economists, at least the sort of supply side school people, is because they don't recognize that what maybe works on paper in their minds isn't quite the same thing that operates in a real functioning world where you're dealing with real people who have to live their lives and make decisions and survive when they're not at work and other kinds of things. So so what um, in terms of like uh, social media as far as um, sort of getting more responsible behavior from corporations, uh, what what kind of things can people do to sort of bring that about? Well, you know, there's a lot of things. And to try to simplify it, let's start by saying I think that everybody needs to do what they have most fun doing, what they have the most passion doing. Sure. So there's no one answer for everyone because we don't want people burning out. This is a new revolution. And what we're really talking about here is is converting a death economy, which we have today, a failed global economic system that's based on debt, fear, militarization, and the destruction of the resources upon which it depends, converting that into a life economy that will be about uh, cleaning up pollution, regenerating destroyed environments, uh, creating new technologies that don't dig up the earth anymore, that, that, that recycle uh, new technologies in energy and transportation, communications, banking, everything, uh, and uh, creating things that do away with desperation and starvation and and poverty, violence, terrorism. We need to create this new economy, and each one of us needs to play a role, and I think people need to do it according to their passions. But here are three things. I'm going to give you three specific things, and there's a lot listed in the book. But here's three specific things that everybody can do or choose one of them. If every one of your listeners picks a corporation, could be Chevron, could be Walmart, it could be uh, Nike. But pick a corporation and write an email, short one, saying, I love your product. Don't make them out to be a bad guy. I love your product, but I'm not going to buy it anymore until you pay your workers a fair wage or stop polluting the Amazon or, or whatever the issue is. And send that email to everybody on your social networking circle and ask them to send it to everybody on their social networking circle and send it to these corporations. That has a huge impact. Corporations respond to these things. We we recently seen big food corporations uh, announce that they're going to do national labeling of GMOs because a very, very few people in a very small state of Vermont forced them to label GMOs in Vermont, so they're going to do it nationally. That's huge. That was a very small group of people primarily through social networking. We all have that that power. A second thing people can do is recognize that in this presidential election year, the president is a symbolic. Yes, if Sanders gets elected, that will be extremely important symbolically, but the president does not have very much power, extremely limited powers. The corporations have the power. And even if you get a president in there like a Sanders who's accepted no money from corporations, he or she will be surrounded by people who have accepted money from corporations and be in an extremely vulnerable position. So during this presidential election, Ask yourself, who are you voting for? Who would you vote for? And why? What issues? What, what, what platform do, that appeals to you the most? And commit to continuing with that platform. If, if you're a candidate that gets elected, force the candidate, support the candidate, move to help the candidate get this platform through. If somebody else gets elected, keep, keep going out there. Use social media. Uh, it can be as simple as sending an email once a week or as complex as, as organizing movements and demonstrations. Uh, but take action. 
And a third thing is everybody can join a movement. Uh, it could be a local movement that is stopping some big box door from, uh, the store excuse me, from coming into your community and destroying local business, or a national movement like the movement to amend the Constitution to take big money out of elections, or a global movement like climate change regulations. But join a movement. And if you can't give money to the movement, give it a little bit of your time every day, emailing, talking to people, promoting it. These are all things that, that every one of us can do, and they're effective. <laughs> Very effective. We've, we've made major changes in my lifetime because we forced corporations to change small numbers of people, forced corporations to stop supporting apartheid in South Africa back when I was in college, and it worked. And another group forced corporations to clean up terribly polluted rivers. And as I, as I mentioned, you know, recently there's a whole thing around uh, minimum wage increases. It's, it's happening in, 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 in California and New York and in the city where I live, Seattle, because people have speak, are speaking out. We have that power. We just need to use it. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, having been involved in a lot of different movements and stuff, I also think it's fulfilling for the individual doing it. I mean, you meet lots of people and meet new friends, and you have a certain sense of that you can affect change with small groups of people, whether, you know, locally, but also with big, sometimes national and international uh, issues. A lot of times, like you said, it doesn't necessarily take a huge number of people to make change as long as it's a uh, modest number of, of committed people who are focused. Um, a lot of things have happened with, with people getting involved in doing those kind of things. And and I do like, too, that you brought up, which something I think people don't necessarily think about much consciously, is that right now we sort of have a, a death and exploitation and destruction kind of economy, like a lot of the biggest uh, parts of the budget, whether it's uh, government or corporate budgets, are involved in things like um, waging war or tearing up the earth and <laughs> things like that. And we definitely could harness, you know, the human resources to do things that are more constructive, you know, to uh, go for green energy instead of, uh, you know, fracking and fossil fuels or at least make some of that transition into go for, um, you know, peacetime jobs instead of sending people overseas to bomb other countries and stuff, which also creates the kind of situation that spurs things and then it becomes a self-perpetuating death cycle where there's attack and retaliation and counterattack. And so um, moving away from that, I think, is, is something that we have to do. And so so I I like that vision and, and I like um, how you narrowed it down now, that, that those aren't the only three steps, but giving people something that each person can do. They can do some of all three of those things, or they can pick one thing and focus on it, or they can read the book and find out a lot of other things that they can do. And, and like you said, if people do what they enjoy, um, all of us can make a change without having to think it's a, a burden or something that we have to do that we're not really into. I mean, most with all the different options you give, there's probably something people can do and actually even enjoy doing it at the same time, you know, making change and also also having a, a good experience doing it. In terms of, uh, I guess uh, I might be going backwards here, but I, we haven't talked too much about your background or, or what, um, you know, what prompted you to write both the first and second book or what experiences led to that. Um, would you be interested in sharing any of that sort of background for people? Um, well, I was hired, you know, basically on as an economic hitman, my official title was chief economist at a major consulting firm called Charles T. Maine. 
But my job was to uh, identify countries with resources that corporations wanted, like oil, and arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sisters' organizations. But the money would never actually go to the company, uh, country. It would go to our own companies that would make huge profits off building power plants and highways and industrial parks, infrastructure that would benefit them, first of all, and a few wealthy individuals in the country that own the uh, industries uh, and commercial centers, but leave the country holding a terribly huge debt that it couldn't repay. So we go back and say, since you can't pay your debts, uh, you give us your resource, oil or whatever, to our corporations uh, real, real cheaply without environmental or social regulations, or privatize. You know, sell your utility companies, your water and sewage systems, your schools, your banks, your prisons to our corporations. Company, country leaders would not buy into this deal. Uh, the jackals would go in and either assassinate them or overthrow them. And, you know, we have a long history in the United States of, of overthrowing or assassinating Allende in Chile and Arbenz in Guatemala yep. and Mossadegh in Iran and Diem in Vietnam and Lumumba in the Congo and on and on. And two of my clients, uh, democratically elected president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, and Panama, Omar Torrijos, were both assassinated because they didn't buy into this deal. Just recently, 2009, President Zelaya, democratically elected president of Honduras, was overthrown in a CIA coup because he stood up to Dole and Chiquita. This goes on and on. And uh, that was my job. And, and uh, over time, and during the 10 years I was in there, I, I increasingly became aware of what a bad system it was. But what I was doing was really wrong. I went in believing it was the right thing to do. I came out believing it was the wrong thing and and got out and decided to write a book and expose the system. And it's certainly an exploitative relationship that some in power have used to sort of perpetuate a system that's for the few and um, leaves so many out of the loop or, or, you know, <laughs> in many cases even has people assassinated because they aren't doing the bidding of, of those uh, powers that be, so to speak. In terms of, I guess, Going forward, um, you, you've made a lot of suggestions of what people can do, and and um, are you ultimately optimistic that that this system will be changed? Um, that we that uh, as we more people are educated and and understand what's going on and what they can do, that will eventually overthrow or sort of overturn this system where economic hitmen no longer are able to do what they have been doing for the past um, several decades. <laughs> Well, yeah, Keith, I'm, I wouldn't be talking to you or I wouldn't write these books if sure. I didn't think, think it was going to happen. I totally believe uh, that, that, it's a, that it's happening. Uh, there's, a, there's a true revolution underway, um, perhaps the most important revolution in, in history. It's really a consciousness revolution, and uh, the very survival of our species depends on winning this revolution. I think we are winning it. I think it's happening. I think the things I described about the GMO labeling, fast food industry, the exposure that's coming out, the, the Panama Papers, uh, Snowden's reports, uh, WikiLeaks, all, all of this is, is really waking people up. And ever since the first Confessions was published 20, 12 years ago, I've been traveling around the world almost, ex, almost extensively, constantly, <laughs> speaking and meeting people and speaking at big events of, of all nature and Everywhere I go, I find that people are waking up, and, and I'm very, very encouraged by that. We need to keep waking up, and we need to take action. 
And it's not enough to just wake up. We also need to take action. And, you know, it's not enough just not to buy at some store that you believe is, is doing, the, uh, let's say, Walmart that you, that you, to whom you're opposed to their policies. you got to, you know, organize a, a consumer campaign. Um, and that's so easy now with, with social networking. Uh, if you decide that you're not going to buy from, let's say, Walmart. And so you, you, you send them an email, and you get all your friends to send them an email and say, why you're not buying from them? I don't like your labor policies. I don't like what, whatever. I want you to get better. I want to buy from you. I love your products, and you've got to get better. And, you know, this is a time for us all to take action, to realize that democracy is about involving all of us. We've kind of given democracy over. We said, oh, if only so-and-so gets elected, everything will be fine. Well, it won't be. We have to make it fine, and we have to recognize that the big corporations that are the problem, they're also the solution, and they depend on us, as, as I said earlier, to buy their things, to work for them, to invest in them, to pay, to pay them through tax dollars. Imagine. If your tax dollar, so about over 50 cents of every tax dollar you pay, Keith, goes to the military-industrial complex, over 50 cents. Now, imagine if that money went to pay General Dynamics or Raytheon, some of the largest companies in the world, big defense contractors, pay them instead of making missiles and armored plate and so forth to make equipment that would mine the plastic in the oceans, that would mine all the oil that's seeped into the Amazon and the Middle East that's, that's, that's flooded some of those areas by, by poor uh, techniques for drilling, that would, that would mine the oil around all the gas stations all over the world where oil tanks have leaked, that would you know, create all kinds of new technologies for, for energy. You know, last year, solar and wind surpassed fossil fuel generation construction. That's great. But we're just in the initial stages. Ten years from now, we're going to look back and say, these solar panels we're using today are very archaic. We need to move forward with new technologies. Imagine the possibilities. Yeah, definitely. And and like you said, I mean, with, with over 50% of our money basically funding or going to the military-industrial complex, that, that highlights again that that, that money is being thrown away into destruction rather than being used to harness, um, you know, to harness a better future and to clean up our environment and, and to create maybe products that can be used as peacetime use rather than, you know, instruments of war. Um, I think things like that are important. I, I do, to some extent, share your optimism, or, or I should say I do share your optimism. And I'm even encouraged, um, as you probably probably know or maybe you don't know but a lot of a lot of my work I do actually in uh regular politics or in electoral politics and stuff and even though I have a past as a social activist and at one time wasn't much interested in electoral politics at all because I felt like <laughs> everybody was compromised but I've I've kind of done a little bit of I'm even encouraged by just by the fact that voters regardless of what um you think of some of the candidates that they're sort of um Kind of thinking out they're they're sort of outside the box this year. I mean, I, there's obviously a lot of problems with the Trump candidacy, and and there's even some problems with Sanders candidacy. But the fact that people in both parties are sort of rejecting the regular arguments for business as usual, I think, is encouraging. Even if some of them are being 
in some ways maybe doing it in a misguided direction. At least it, it suggests that there's some kind of consciousness out there that the status quo isn't working, even if some people aren't maybe making the right choice of how to, you know, fight that. I mean, you know, obviously Trump is is a wealthy businessman with a lot of bad ideas on, on immigration policy and other things, but in some ways he's not a traditional neocon warmonger. We don't really know what his foreign policy is. And then, of course, Bernie Sanders has got a lot of mileage out of um, some of the economic arguments that I think need to be made in, in terms of opposition to trade agreements and concentration of wealth at the top. And so um, I think those things suggest that people are thinking that some of the conventional um, politics, both in the foreign policy realm and in the economic realm, are not not the way we need to keep going, and maybe that that highlights some of the uh, clamoring for change, even if not everybody's quite figured out what that change should look like, or maybe some of their ideas aren't in the right direction. They at least recognize that there's a problem. Um, what are your thoughts on sort of that part of the whole process? Well, I agree that this uh, this presidential election. Uh, is uh, indicative that there's a lot of discouraged, disappointed, dissatisfied people who want to see change. On the left, they're going with Sanders, and on the right, they're going with Trump. But they sort of all represent this dissatisfaction, a waking up to the the failures of the system. And it's interesting that both of those candidates have said that they're not taking money from big corporations. Trump doesn't need to, apparently. He's got enough of his own, and Bernie's going after just the average citizen. And, and I think that's, that's also very important because hopefully that will send a message that in the future no candidate should be taking money from corporations or excessive amounts of money from any individuals at all, that the, that the wealthy just shouldn't have this kind of power that they have it's where, we, where we no longer have one person, one vote. It's, you know, a million dollars is worth a, a lot more than, than a single vote. There's no question about it in this day and age when it's used in campaign financing. So, yeah, there's a strong signal out there that's coming from both the left and the right of dissatisfaction of the need for change. But among all of that, I think we also have to recognize that the whole uh, election process is, is, is a bit of a circus. It'll go, it's, it will, by the time we elect the next president, we'll have gone on for about two years. There's no other country that goes through that incredibly expensive, ridiculous process, and it's a distraction. We mustn't be distracted from the fact that you and I and all your listeners, we have the power, and we need to get involved in a lot more than just electing somebody, just going to the poll. That's not enough. It's important, but it's not enough. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, I think distraction is a very good word for it because I I think um, oftentimes when people get so focused on one candidate or, you know, one election cycle, they lose a lot of their – empowerment on things that they actually have more control over than, you know, than the presidential election or even, you know, even some local elections, which I think in many ways are much more important than presidential ones. But, but there's so much that has to be done, you know, outside of the electoral realm, like you said, like putting pressure on corporations, uh, telling them that you like their product, but that you want to see some changes in their business practices or you're not going to shop there. I mean, things like that ultimately are going to have a lot of, um, can have a lot of influence over over things, and so the you know the political circus in many ways is a distraction from that. It's not. Um, I think 
it's a mistake if people think it's completely irrelevant, but it also shouldn't be the bulk of what they do. It should be sort of a supplement other more um, concentrated action that's done over a long period of time. And it would be nice too, you know, the political cycle is just too long as that kind of distraction could siphon people's away energy away for, you know, two whole years when they could be doing other things. Um, or, you know, hopefully people are, are keeping their involvement uh, proportionate to what needs to be done rather than getting completely sucked into, you know, who won this primary and who won this state and how much money do I have to send this person, you know, because then sometimes they're losing sight of the bigger objective, which isn't about putting one person in the White House. It's about um, transforming sort of transforming our economy and our consciousness away. You know, I mean, obviously we have huge, huge important issues to deal with, the world financial system, um, climate change, you know, protecting our resources. I mean, existential threats to our survival, both in terms of like war and and, um, environmental destruction and climate change. And so we have to keep focused on those kind of broader issues. Um, Often we can act locally or in small ways, but I mean, we have to be looking at the bigger picture and what we're actually trying to make sure that we're um, doing and and making sure that we're combating some of the threats to humanity, but also, you know, creating a kinder sort of gentler world where people are working together um, to accomplish things and and that improving everybody's lives in the process. So I think it's, I think your perspective on that is, is dead on. I think that's, that's kind of the way we have to, see things going forward. Correct, yeah, I agree. And definitely, so I, I think that's important. And one other, I guess one other note, which I I think you brought up too, is it's a close with Trump and Sanders not taking money from corporations. The, the other side of that is the persons who were sort of had the most puppet strings uh, directing them. I think people like Scott Walker, Jeb Bush, and Marco Rubio, none of them did very well. So that, that's a good thing. I mean, I think Jeb Bush had the largest super PAC of any candidate in history, and I don't think he hardly could get above 7% in the polls anywhere. So, I mean, <laughs> that's maybe a good sign um, in that respect as well. And then um, taking it back to, I, I guess we're in the last five or six minutes or something that we have, just what other things would you like the, the listeners to know? And also, um, in terms of uh, where can they get more information from you? You can, uh, you mentioned your website again, but you could probably mention that again as well as where they can order the book and, and other things they might be able to do to get involved. Sure. Yeah, uh, you know, you can get my book, The New Confession of the Economic Hitman, or any of the other ones at any place that sells books, basically bookstores. It's an, it should be available in all the bookstores if they're sold out. Get them to order more or on any of the online vendors. And you can go to johnperkins.org for more information, um, including where I'm speaking. I would love to meet some of your listeners in person. Uh, That's in there. And please sign up for my newsletter. You have to actually put your email address in the little box there. And I'm also on Facebook at economic underscore underline hitman, excuse me, underscored hitman. So, and I'd love to, you know, stay in touch with some of your listeners. So that's a good place to go, johnperkins.org. Absolutely. And I'll put those links up on our Liberal Fix page, too, so people can get them directly from there if they want to do that. I do really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to us And uh, we'll, as far as the – but uh, anyways, thank you again so much and hope you have a wonderful rest of the week and keep keep doing what you're doing. You're fighting the good fight, and we really appreciate it. 
Thank you, Keith. And I'd just like to say the same to you that I, uh, you're, they're doing a great job. Keep up your good works. Keep spreading the word. My hat's off to you. Thank you very much. You have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. That was John Perkins with uh, Confessions or New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, And uh, to our listeners, I hope you have a wonderful weekend as well. Um, Be safe out there. Be kind to your neighbors. And we'll see you again next week uh, on Friday, uh, July 1st. Um, So uh, that's our show for this evening, and I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you.